So guys, if you like Faye and I and you have trouble kind of just getting in gear to study or you need something quick and easy for after those long days in the hospital, we have an exciting resource for you. Nick and I have partnered up with the OBG Project to bring you more amazing content every single day. Their content is excellent and like Faye said, is updated every single day. There's a variety of things ranging from pregnancy to gynecology, all the latest updates, as well as latest in clinical trials, things you may not even read every day. And, you know, Nick and I talked about if this podcast were to get support, who would we get support from? And we decided that, you know, we would only be talking to our supporters about things that we personally use and enjoy and think are useful. So the OBG project is all of those things. If you're a fourth year resident, you can get access to a premium subscription service from the OBG project called OBG First. Check out our website at creugsovercoffee.com on how you can get signed up and get free access to this super awesome subscription service for one year. So OBG First is going to be a daily email or text to your phone that includes a clinical summary of the most relevant research paper. And you'll also be notified when important guidelines come out from important societies such as ACOG, SMFM, SOGC, CDC, etc. It's all available at the tap of a button on your phone too, which is awesome. If you're a fourth-year resident, go ahead and sign up. All they require of you is your email address as well as your program just to verify that you are a fourth-year resident, and they'll send you a coupon in your email that you can use to get one free year of OBG First. Hey, guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. And this is Nick. And this is... Creogs over, over coffee. Today with us, we have Dr. Ben Young, who is a resident physician in ophthalmology at Yale New Haven Hospital, who is going to be talking to us today about vision loss in pregnancy. Welcome, Ben. Hi. It's an honor to be on the show as a non-obstetrician. So Ben, you've come up with some learning objectives for us today. So number one, we're going to talk about the basics of ophthalmology and the ophthalmic exam. Number two, we'll talk about why vision loss can occur during pregnancy. Number three, we're going to talk about a differential diagnosis of vision loss. And number four is knowing when to refer to ophthalmology. Ben, we're going to call you about vision loss. At least I'm assuming, Faye, that you don't know anything about vision because I don't know anything about vision either. Nothing at all. So what do we what are we supposed to do when a patient comes to us and says, help, I'm losing or have lost my vision? I definitely understand that the eye is a black box to most providers. So I think if you break it down to a couple of simple things to look at, then it can really you can really make more sense of it and think of it more like the other organ systems that you're much more familiar at trying to evaluate. So the first step to evaluating how healthy someone's eye is is to look for what we call the ocular vital signs. It's really analogous to the uh, systemic vital signs that you evaluate every day in your uh, ED or in triage. Just like how, you know, if a nurse tells you the vital signs of a patient, it gives you a snapshot of the health of that patient in that moment. The ocular vital signs give you a snapshot of the health of an eye, and of either eye in that moment. So the ocular vital signs are vision, pupils, and We typically say eye pressure, but I'll tell you that in pregnancy, eye pressure usually isn't a problem. I'll bring up a few exceptions to that, but I know that in general, in um, EDs, they don't have pressure measuring devices for the eye available. 
so I wouldn't worry as much about pressure. And then there's one other quote vital sign to evaluate, which is extraocular movements. That's outside the eyes. So I don't call it an ocular vital sign, but it's um, kind of the third thing that I would look for. So you'll notice that I did not say fundoscopy, like looking at their optic nerve or trying to look at their retina for a tear or anything. Honestly, as an ophthalmologist, I really don't expect other people to be able to see it, even with the training that we all got in medical school. I don't think it's, um, you know, I, if you can find it, I think that's great. And I think it can help you moving on, but I wouldn't expect it out of any kind of um, non-eye uh, provider. And Ben, so when you're saying vision and pupils, should I just do a Snellen chart with them and have them just make sure that they can see what their vision is, like 2020? And for pupils, is it do I just like shine a light in their eye and kind of do the swinging light exam? Yeah, that's a great question. So for vision, all I care about is their best corrected vision. So use a Snellen chart. A lot of you will have Snellen charts on your Maxwell's um, um, reference. I don't think a lot of us got in medical school. Or honestly, you can go online and just print the Snellen chart. All I care about is how the the best you can get their vision. So I don't care about how far or close the thing is. I would get the handheld ones. Um, like if, they, if the patient wants to hold it like two inches from their face and they can read it, that's honestly fine with me because it tells me that if I change their eyeglass prescription, then I can get improve their vision at a different distance. Because if the problem is simply refractive, i.e. a glasses difference, as we'll go into in a bit, that's not ever going to be an emergency. And then for pupils, that's a great question too. You want to look at the size of the pupil and to see in the same lighting condition whether or not the pupils are symmetric. The one addition that I'd urge you to try to do is to do what we call the swinging light test. I think that in most med schools, they teach it when they talk about Marcus Gunn pupil with syphilis. Yeah, something kind of in the back of my mind going off there. But yeah. why don't you remind us, Ben, of what exactly that is? What a swinging light test is is a test the difference in reactivity of the two eyes. So if there's something that is causing like a retinal problem in one eye and not in the other, then the swing light test can help you compare and tell you there's a problem with one eye over the other. That's why I think it's really valuable. So to do a swing light test, you take your light, you shine at one eye, and you should see it constrict like we expect, and then you move it to the other eye. What happens as the light is moving from one eye to the other is that both eyes are going to start to redilate a little bit. So then when you move the light from one eye to the other, as it's in transit, the eye will dilate. And then when it gets to the other eye, it will constrict. So you'll start to see this pattern where you shine one line, constrict. You go to the other eye, constrict. You come back, constrict. A positive swinging light test is when you move from one eye to the other and the other eye continues to dilate. So I shine it, let's say in the right eye, it constricts. Then you move it to the left eye and it dilates. That tells you that that eye is not picking up light as well as the other eye for whatever reason, usually a problem in the retina or the optic nerve. And that means that eye is not going to constrict as much to light as the other eye. That's really the only way to objectively really tell yourself that there's a problem in one eye over the other. Okay, so we've talked about the four vital signs. And then can you just remind us, Ben, because I think, you know, we learn a lot of pelvic anatomy and, you know, Dr. Cleary last time taught us about breast anatomy. I literally don't know any eye anatomy. I think, you know, the eyeballs exist, and that's about it. Yep, there are two of them. I know that much. <laughs> Typically. So, and, you know, one way to think about it is what path the light takes from the outside world into your eye and into your brain. So the first thing that the light interacts with is your cornea. So that's the front clear dome of your eye. Like if you're going to touch your eye, that's like the part that you would touch is up the front clear dome. That's where the, the one tidbit to tell you is that's where the majority of the eye's um, refractive power comes from. So if there's any kind of problem with the surface of the eye, which we'll go into when, once we talk about actual differentials, 
then that can cause a huge impact in vision. After that, it passes through your pupil into the lens. So the lens is not something that you probably have ever seen unless you did an ophthalmology rotation, but it sits just behind the iris and it's um, the second most powerful part of the eye that helps focus light. Then the light goes all the way to the back wall of the eye to the retina. So the retina is the wallpaper on the inside of the eye where the rods and cones and everything we learned about um, um, lives. So it's like the film of the camera. Then the retina all comes together to become a cable that we call the optic nerve. And that optic nerve travels, becomes the chiasm, and eventually connects to um, your occipital cortex. And that's how, you, that's how you see. That's vision. So as we talk about differentials, and I encourage you, if you're trying to think about a differential for why someone's having a vision problem, you can travel along that path just like what we did. So travel from photon to neuron to see where um, the problem with the light would be. The eye can be a black box. But to think about um, the dangerous and non-dangerous differentials, there's three easy questions that you can um, start with to ask yourself and that the consulting ophthalmologist would find really important. The most important thing to me um, to, to, as a consultant is whether or not one eye or two eyes are affected. You know, you'd, you'd think that this would be obvious and would come out just as you're talking to a patient, but you'd be surprised how many times I talk to a provider and they're like, you know, I ask them, okay, so is it just her left eye or is it both eyes? And they, they, they don't like truly know. So it's really important that you ask the patient, you test, if they're currently having the vision problem, to test both eyes. If it was a transient vision problem, really try to get them to remember if it is. And if they don't know, we run into that all the time too. As you can imagine, tremendously impacts a differential if it's one eye or two eyes. The second thing is to, to ask them whether they have double vision associated because that can pretend to a lot of dangerous things. But the most important thing is not only that they have double vision, but that it's binocular double vision. What, what I mean by that is that they have double vision when both eyes are open. If they cover an eye and the double vision goes away, then that means that they only have double vision when their eye, both eyes are open. If they cover an eye and the double vision is still there and make sure you test both eyes, then that means they have monocular double vision, which is actually very not dangerous. Monocular double vision, the differential is basically dry eye. Is, or something, or like their glasses are dirty, uh, which is not an emergent consultation for an ophthalmologist. <laughs> so it's it's really important to, to just ask, you know just ask them to test it really quick. Like, hey, when you cover an eye, and you ask them to cover both eyes, does double vision go away? And if it does go away, that's actually worse because that means there's something wrong with the eye muscles or the nerve going to the eyes. And the last thing to always ask a patient when they're having an eye problem is if they have flashing lights or floaters. That can prompt very dangerous retinal pathology that may need to be acted on urgently or emergently. So again, the three questions are one eye or two eyes. That's the most important one to remember. Then binocular double vision and then flashes or floaters. And then we'll go into other stuff as we go along with the differential. Great. Thanks for taking us through that, Ben. So for obstetricians, probably what we want to know is whether something is really dangerous or really not that dangerous. Why don't we start by talking about some things that are non-emergent reasons for vision loss in pregnancy? Yeah. So conveniently, there's two non-emergent visions causes for vision loss that are all actually also the most common causes of vision changes or vision loss in pregnancy. Just to go back a little bit, when I say vision loss, I don't. I think a lot of people think that vision loss is like, oh, my vision just completely blacks out. But Usually how we use the term vision loss is just there's some change in vision. So they might have went from 2020 to like 2050 vision. We would still call that vision loss. So um, blackout vision is a different thing or complete loss of vision is a different thing. So the two most common causes of vision changes, maybe if that's a better term, in pregnancy is um, the first is refractive error. So just as, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty much everything in the body can swell in pregnancy. 
the eye Correct. can also that's okay good i that's that was just my impression but the structures within the eye can also swell and mainly that we're concerned about the cornea and the lens so you can imagine if your lens and your camera change shape a little bit then the power of that lens would change the same thing if the cornea or the lens uh, changes shape a little bit um, gets like a little bit more swollen then the power of their eye can change so it can basically change what power of glasses that they would need in general that in, in pregnancy women become more nearsighted as those structures um, change so that's not a hard and fast rule but generally they become more nearsighted how you can as a provider tell if this is what's going on is see if they can read better when things are up close like if they feel like their vision is back to where it's normal it's supposed to be when they're reading up close that's a sign that they've had this nearsighted vision shift a myopic shift and then also see if it's happening in both eyes symmetrically in general it should affect both eyes because you know it's not like right eye is more likely to get swollen than the left so it should be pretty symmetric and it should be um fairly gradual like it won't be like a sudden change in vision and um in general like if they just move a card or something closer and you can still see 2020 then they have a healthy eye another tidbit with this is sometimes it comes up that you know a patient of childbearing age will consider having lasik uh, or a refractive surgery any good eye provider should never want to operate on a patient that's either pregnant or just delivered or is planning to soon have a child because their um, refractive error will shift. So if um, a patient asks you about that, like, hey, I'm thinking about LASIK, what do you think? Just tell them to wait until well after their pregnancy is over. So that's the most common cause of vision changes in pregnancy. The second most common is actually dry eye. It may be surprising this to hear to some providers that dryness can cause vision changes. But that's why I said before that the cornea is where the most refractive power of the eye comes from. Even a little disturbance, like a little bit of dryness on the surface of the eye can dramatically change vision, actually. It's kind of like getting little dry spots on your windshield. It's going to be really hard to see through. That's exactly how dry eye presents. It's more common in pregnancy because the idea is that hormonal shifts can cause changes in dry eye, which is also why uh, women tend to have more dry than men because of um, they have different hormonal changes as they go on later in life. Or they may tell you like, oh yeah, when I'm in the office, then my, I, like, my vision's like getting a lot worse. A lot of places will have like an air vent or something over cubicles, and then that can dry your eyes out just by like working or keeping your eyes open because you're focused on something. As you can expect, they may complain of a dryness of their eyes or a gritty sensation, though they don't have to. That's an important thing to know is that dry eye does not have to cause a sensation of dryness. And some people will even feel it as like a headache around their eyes because of how the eyes are innervated. They can, the pain from dry can refer to like around their eyes. So you can have periorbital discomfort. The, the treatment's simple. Just give them artificial tears to help moisturize their eyes. So we'll definitely try and not call you in the middle of the night, Ben, when people come in for these reasons. But what are the reasons that we should definitely be calling you? The number one thing to highlight, because it can be a lethal cause of vision problems in pregnancy, is um, pituitary we call it, I, I call it pituitary apoplexy. There's like another term for what do you guys like it? Sheehan syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So Sheehan syndrome. Now, my understanding of the pathophysiology is that you can have an acute infarct of the pituitary with hemorrhaging, which can cause basically like sudden enlargement and loss of function of the pituitary gland. The important thing is that it, its initial manifestations may be visual. So that's why it's important to catch early. And then it can be lethal because of the endocrinopathies that can develop as a result of Sheehan syndrome. The characteristics of vision changes in Sheehan syndrome are 
um, vision changes because of compression of the optic nerve and chiasm. Those vision changes will not be the same as we talked about in dry eye or refractive error. In general, because it's an optic nerve compression, they may have color vision changes. So that's actually a thing that you can try to ask is like, hey, do the colors look like more grayed out? Do they look different to you? As all people who took step one know, they can have a bitemporal hemianopsia. But I'll tell you, as an ophthalmologist, I actually very rarely see it as a genuine bitemporal hemianopsia. The pituitary gl gland doesn't always, you know, play ball and sit right on the center of the chiasm. It can kind of lean to one side or the other, so it may seem more like monoc like one eye versus the other, or it may seem um, just like temporal on one side or the other. So that's a vision change. It can also have double vision because the pituitary gland can compress a cavernous sinus. The important thing to know about that is it can affect three, four, or um, or, or six. So it can cause a cranial nerve palsy, giving you double vision. So if someone has vision changes double vision, and a headache from the um, hemorrhage from Sheehan syndrome, then, I mean, that's that's the reason to get urgent scanning to get, like, neurosurgery or endocrine emergently involved because um, they can pass from adrenal crisis because of this. So that's not something to wait to call the ophthalmologist or to get them scanned or keep them in your ED for. Okay, so that's the, that's, like, honestly, if you take away anything from from this episode, I think that's the one is to remember that that's a thing. And they can seem to only have vision problems, usually with a headache, but it can seem to only be a visual thing. And that's not something to say like, oh, see your ophthalmologist the next day for, you know, which is uh, for a lot of these other things that you can. So just to hit on a couple other reasons that can be more dangerous that are, are more common in pregnancy, uh, meningiomas, um, especially in the cella can, um, can affect the optic nerve, but that's usually more of a chronic thing. It'll be one eye, so this is another reason why knowing which eye is important, because if it's affecting both eyes, it's probably dry eye refractive error, but it's affecting only one eye, then there might be something that's affecting only one with like a, like a tumor. So meningiomas are not more common in pregnancy, but they can get ex be exacerbated in pregnancy because there's estrogen receptors on meningiomas that can get bigger in pregnancy. And the typical age to develop a meningioma is like 30s and 40s. So, you know, that's pretty close to the childbearing age for a lot of women. It's a similar story with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Uh, I think a lot of places called pseudotumor cerebri. Incidence is not increased by pregnancy, but the demographic for people with um, idiopathic is they're women of childbearing age, so younger women, and the major risk factor is obesity, and people can gain weight in pregnancy, or I guess are expected to gain weight in pregnancy. The main way that it will actually affect people's vision if they have, quote, pseudotumor, it won't affect your central vision. So they may not notice any central vision deficits. Like, it may not be a vision problem. They usually would present with headache, um, peripheral vision field loss, but it's going to be really hard to pick up. Uh, but the main way is either double vision because um, the pressure from IAH can compress the sixth nerve, so they can get double vision, and they can get transient vision obscuration. And the pressure basically transient vision loss with a um, with a change in position. So the classic way I ask this is when you bend over to tie your shoes, is your vision blackout? The reason for that is there's a transient elevation and in intracranial pressure when they bend over, whatever, and then that can choke off the optic nerve from that just that pressure and then cause transient vision loss. So if you're thinking someone has IH, you know, they have a headache or something, then look for double vision and um, look for uh, transient vision loss with positional changes. There's um, a couple weird problems that I'll just touch on um, that can be exacerbated in the pregnancy. 
But so th there's unusual retinal conditions. The main thing to know about that is that, again, these are would usually just affect one eye. It's possible for any of them to affect two eyes, but usually be worse in one eye or another, which is, again, why asking that which eye question or if it's worse in one eye or the other is really important because if it affects both symmetrically, it, it can be a serious problem. It usually is not. But if it affects only one eye, then that means that that's something that needs to be um, looked at more, more closely and carefully. We can talk a little bit more about diabetic retinopathy. Because I know that's like kind of um, a big, a bigger like bugaboo with um, gestational diabetes and worsening diabetes in pregnancy. Ocular changes before it causes vision loss. So uh, I, I, you know, because I am a close listener of your lovely podcast, I know you guys have already covered it. So it's important for patients with diabetes or gestational diabetes to have regular screening. Um, I, I think the guidelines in pregnancy are every three months. They get screened to make sure they don't have early signs that can be pre prevented from developing um, potentially blinding conditions. If they have a vision loss, though, due to diabetic retinopathy, then that almost always means it needs some kind of semi-urgent intervention, whether it's a laser or introduction of medication into the eye. So if they have diabetes and vision loss, again, usually one eye worse than the other in general, um, both eyes will eventually become affected, but usually one eye worse than the other, then they should probably be seen by their ophthalmologist much sooner rather than later, later depending on the degree of vision loss uh, or floaters. But if it gets, if it, the people let it go and it starts to proliferate and cause a lot of problems, then, you know, it, it's like treating cancer. Like you, you can do a lot of treatment to try to calm it down, but a lot of these people eventually become blind and we see a lot of them in our clinic. So if you, I, I've, you know, when we tell our patients that oftentimes they are more likely to come, but it's, I can, I know it's hard to get asymptomatic patients to come to get a dilated eye exam and get, you know, bright lights shown in their eyes by me and my lovely colleagues. Um, Okay, the last cause of vision loss that is increased in pregnancy is either due to eclampsia or preeclampsia. We don't see that often. Uh, you know, it, it's obviously a known entity. The vision loss can either be cortical or retinal. Now, if it's cortical, um, you'll remember from med school that if you have a cortical cause of vision loss, it'll be in both eyes, but only in one hemifield, so the homonymous hemianopsia. So either the left side on both eyes or the right side on both eyes or something. Um, and I'll tell you, patients often misinterpret um, right-sided, you know, homonymous hemianopsia as right vision loss. So they'll say like, oh, I can't see out of my right eye, when really elucidate when you're trying to figure out is it one eye or both eyes because that can guide a lot of what to do like should they be sent to the ophthalmologist the next day or should you image them the same day for example the last thing i'll mention is that these are only or in pregnancy or exacerbated by pregnancy um obviously you have you know it's a three-year ophthalmology residency to figure out all the reasons of vision loss in someone um so th this is not totally inclusive of everything that could happen um, in a pregnant patient but Hopefully, it's a decent checklist of things to think about if you have a patient with vision loss. Absolutely. So we started talking about the basics of ophthalmology just as a refresher for all you OBGYNs out there. Um, again, Ben talked with us about the ocular vital signs that include an assessment out there, vision, uh, an assessment of the pupils, including that swinging flashlight test, and an assessment of extraocular movements. Um, the fourth vital sign in vision is pressure, but we don't really think about that and we don't really have the ability to measure that. So again, the first three things are the things you want to remember. We also talked on the basics of anatomy for the eye. So we talked about first 
the layers of the eye. So light first hits the cornea, which is the most important factor in determining refractive vision, uh, then goes to the lens, then the retina, then the optic nerve, and then the cortex. Again, in making your initial assessment of somebody with visual changes in pregnancy, there are some other questions to ask, including whether the vision loss or change is affecting one eye or both eyes, if that vision change is accompanied by binocular double vision, and whether there are flashes or floaters present. We then talked about emergent versus non-emergent reasons for patients to have vision loss and whether or not we need to call our ophthalmology colleagues in the middle of the night. So two reasons that patients can have vision loss that are non-emergent include a refractive error. So a patient who is having swelling with pregnancy can actually become more nearsighted with pregnancy or simply dry eye. Um, and this can also be due to the hormonal changes in pregnancy. So both of these things are non-emergent reasons that patients can have vision loss and are easily elucidated if you were to ask them some of those questions in terms of differential diagnosis. By checking in on somebody's vision, you can also save their life. And the most important thing for OBGYNs to recognize is visual changes associated with pituitary apoplexy or Sheehan syndrome, as we usually call it. Again, the visual field defect comes from compression of the optic chiasm, and we classically hear that on test questions as bitemporal hemianopsia, um, but can cause a number of different visual changes and cranial nerve palsies. It usually is accompanied by headache and neck rigidity, um, as well as endocrinopathy type of changes and can be lethal from an adrenal crisis. Other things that can be exacerbated by pregnancy but aren't increased in incident necessarily in pregnancy are things like paracella meningiomas, which can cause a muscular vision change or loss because of estrogen receptors on the meningioma. And another thing is idiopathic intracranial hypertension, um, previously known as pseudotumor cerebri, because uh, the demographic for IIH is women of childbearing age we also talked theoretically about some retinal conditions that are uncommon in pregnancy as well, including retinal detachment from HELP syndrome and Valsalva retinopathy due to prolonged pushing. And finally, we touched on issues like diabetic retinopathy, which usually does not cause sudden vision loss, but can lead to gradual vision loss. And it is important for pregnant women who have diabetes to follow up with their ophthalmologists for dilated exams every three months. And last of all, we talked about preeclampsia and eclampsia, which can cause both cortical or retinal causes of vision loss. All right, guys. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. For that ophthalmologist in your life, don't forget about Ben's own podcast, Eyes for Ears, that's available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You can find him uh, on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. If you've got any corrections to this podcast or got other ideas or things you want to hear about for the future, give us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Also find us in other places on social media, like on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, um, our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com, and at www.patreon.com slash creogsovercoffee.